Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Climate change. It is something we're all thinking about in one form or another, and the way it affects plants is about as varied as there are plants out there. But trying to figure out how individual species, especially in the context of their populations and all of the other things they have to deal with, both living and non-living in their habitat, uh, is a really important pursuit. And that is exactly what Dr. Megan DeMarsh is up to. She's here today to talk to us about her work on a handful of really interesting and really cool alpine plants and how climate change is affecting them and and what kinds of ways they can either adapt or not adapt. I will let her do all the talking because she is a great orator of the science. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to do a quick shout out to all of my patrons that support this show each and every month through patreon.com slash plants. I could not be doing the show without their support each and every month. So if you enjoy the show and you want to kick in to just help the show have a future, consider doing that. Once again, it is at patreon.com slash plants. But that is entirely enough for me. This is really fascinating work. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Megan DeMarsh. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Megan DeMarsh, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to pick your brain today. But first, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about what it is you do. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me. I've been a big fan of the podcast for a while. So this is exciting for me. Oh, thanks. Uh, so I'm an assistant professor at UGA, and I like to think that I study, you know, plant populations in the wild. So I'm really interested in, you know, if we go outside our doors today to wild plant populations, what is regulating those populations, what's determining whether they're doing well or whether they're doing poorly. And because we're living in this time of just unprecedented environmental change, that means that often a lot of the questions that we're focusing on are um, things like how are effects of climate change um, predominantly or sometimes questions around habitat fragmentation or, or other environmental changes impacting plants in the wild today. Um, but it did take me sort of a while to get here. I want to admit that when I first started my educational journey, I was just as guilty of plant blindness <laughs> as anyone else. It's okay. Safe space. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Yeah, it it took me a while to appreciate it. Uh, I started getting interested in biology, but definitely the kind of cute and fuzzy side of biology. And it took me a little while to recognize that plants were just as cute and fuzzy (laughs) as anything else. (laughs) Um, And really, you know, I have to credit some undergrad research opportunities for that. So I I got involved working with some really great folks at UC Davis where I was an undergraduate, um, Jason Sexton and Kevin Rice, and they introduced me to some monkey flowers. And at that point, I just was hooked. It was just the cutest little plant I'd ever seen. And I realized, you know, not only are plants just so amazingly adaptive to such a incredible range of environments. Um, but 
they're also just so fun to get to know and work with. And then, you know, from an experimental perspective, conveniently, if you put them someplace, they stay there. <laughs> so that was a real advantage too. <laughs> yes, they do uh, within a good margin. So I'm very thankful for that as well. But <laughs> so it just sounds like you were always in tune with nature. You knew you wanted to work in it, but it just took dipping your toe in the botanical water to really just set your career full steam ahead. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it, it took me a while to, to get there. But once I got the botany bug, I was that was it for me. <laughs> nice. But when it comes to studying plants, obviously, it is as broad as anyone's imagination can be. So how did you start getting into this concept of wanting to understand plant populations in the wild and, and all of the, the myriad ways they can be affected by biotic and abiotic conditions? Yeah, that was a, a little bit of a journey for me as well. Um, you know, I think initially I was really drawn to pretty evolutionary questions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't help start paying attention to plants without noticing just the exquisite adaptations that they have to all kinds of different environmental challenges. And I just found it so fascinating. Like, they're almost these little engineers that whatever environmental problem they have, they come up with such creative solutions. I mean, I don't study like deceptive pollination and orchids, for example, but, you know, as I was starting to learn more about plant adaptation, I was just so struck by the diversity in the plant world. Um, and so I, I really was interested in thinking about how plants evolved and how they were adapted to their particular environmental conditions and understanding that. And so when I was a graduate student, I uh, came up with this whole idea for my dissertation research where I was going to study uh, a species of monkey flower um, in the Sierra Nevada along elevation gradients. So from low elevation sites that are really hot and dry, and they have this very short window of time when they actually have enough water to grow to higher elevation sites that are much cooler, but wetter. And, um, you know, along those gradients, there was this cool life history transition where at lower elevations, Plants tend to be annual, so they germinate and flower really quickly at a small size and do their whole life cycle in this really narrow window of time. And then at higher elevations, you get these bigger perennial plants that sort of take their time, wait to reproduce, instead invest in growing bigger over a couple of years. Um, and so I really wanted to understand, you know, how different environments might be um, selecting for those different types of strategies. But I didn't realize when I was concocting this idea initially that I was sort of presuming <laughs> that populations would, in fact, be adapted to their local environment. So I did this, uh, this whole experiment and I, I transplanted plants from all different environments into high elevation sites. And then it just so happened that it was a historic drought in California uh. for the three years of my field study. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And and so what I found, not surprisingly, was that actually it was these lower elevation plants that had evolved in hot and dry environments that far and away did the best in these these higher elevation places and actually beat out the the plants that had evolved at higher elevations long term. And so for me, that was a real wake up call that that whether I set out to study climate change or not, if I wanted to study wild populations today, those populations are experiencing environmental change. And so I may as well, you know, ground my questions within that context, because you really can't ignore it. Um, Kind of any question that we want to ask now, if we're out asking it in the wild, in, in natural populations, we have to consider the fact that those populations are experiencing wildly different climate conditions. Um, maybe they're in much more fragmented habitats. Maybe they're experiencing a ton of nitrogen deposition or stress from invasive species or pests or diseases. Um, and so, yeah, I sort of had this wake-up call that we really you know, have to always have that in the back of our mind, regardless of what our questions are. Wow. Uh, it's inspiring, actually, because a lot of people would be daunted by a three-year drought for the duration of what is a very time-sensitive period of career trajectories, right? But it sounds like you internalized it. I'm sure it was no lack of stress, regardless of how interesting it was, but you made something of it. And it really, it's amazing to think of the vagaries of nature not only being interesting, because I think any one of us can appreciate it, regardless of how invested we are in the system we're staring at at any given moment of time, but to turn it into really a, a very fruitful line of research, because you start looking through your publication record and, and it has left its mark in, in, in a really fascinating way. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I, I really think that as much as we as scientists have this idea of the scientific method, right, as you you ask a question and you carefully design an experiment to test that question, I think in a lot of ways, some of the most uh, surprising or really important insights we've had in biology are from things going spectacularly wrong. <laughs> like a three-year drought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something just totally surprising. And then you have to think to yourself, you know, uh, okay, what is happening here? And and so, yeah, I think there is sort of that pivot from panic. Oh my gosh, all my plants are dying. This is a disaster. Dying. This is really interesting. What's causing that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, kudos for recognizing that, but you did say something that I think is really interesting, and it's something that uh, I think will take a lot of people not in the literature by surprise, is this idea that plants, when you see them, the common thought is like, oh, that's their habitat. That's where they want to be. But you said plants might not be adapted to current conditions. So let's unpack that idea a little bit, because it is surprising, and, and it's something I think every one of us, regardless of experience, need to be reminded of time and time again when it comes to plant life history events. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think we we see that, you know, we can look at the climate record and, and see, you know, historically what sort of climate conditions might have happened over the last several hundred years in a place and compare that 
to the conditions we see now. Um, you know, so for example, the that drought that happened during my PhD was like a one in several hundred years drought. So way beyond the the normal kind of range of, of conditions. Um, and so, you know, the way the visual I kind of think of it is, you know, even if uh, plants are sort of staying in the same place, the rug is kind of being pulled out <laughs> from under them. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, and and we we see this directly now in in all kinds of experiments where where people are testing whether plants do best in in their local environment where they have persisted and evolved for a long time, or if they actually do better if you move them a little bit up in elevation or a little bit farther north. Um, and we're increasingly seeing this pattern of, of what's called maladaptation. So um, plants no longer being sort of the best adaptation strategy for where they are. Um, and there's actually some really beautiful work that's that's been done on this um, by uh, Jill Anderson and her colleagues at, in the Rocky Mountain Bio Lab, where they've actually um, added snowpack back to these alpine environments because, you know, one of the big changes that's happening in the alpine is that snowpack is reduced and snow is melting much earlier. And so they, they did this fantastic experiment where they, you know, basically added additional snow onto these plants um, to mimic more historical conditions, sort of pre-climate change conditions. And they were actually able to recover that pattern of local adaptation. So um, they're able to show that that plants would have done best in their home site under, you know, previous climate conditions. But now the climate has changed to such an extent that they're no longer sort of the best strategy. Wow. I oof, moving snow around. That is not easy. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting point to bring up because there's there's two fascinating aspects of the, about the plant life cycle that is, is is hard for us as humans to get our heads wrapped around and is a as you mentioned they don't move or at least they don't move very much um and the other part of it is even perennials uh these herbaceous species that are rhizomatous where we don't have the luxury of going out and taking tree ring samples can live so much longer than most people give them credit for and so when you factor in, yeah, okay, the climate's always changed. There's never been a state we could go back to, quote unquote, but the, it's it's that rate. And as that starts to speed up, the the longevity and the sessile nature of plants starts to really complicate things. And this is why I think your research is a really good point, that context matters. You got to study these things in situ. Yeah. And, you know, I think about that a lot with some of the alpine plants that we work with. Um, so... Part of this uh, long-term study for two alpine plant species, um, and you know, I, I started getting involved in in 2015. But my my collaborators, uh, Dan Doak and Bill Morris, they actually first started um, watching this alpine plant. It's called Moss Campion or Silenia collis. It's in the Carnation family. So if you ever have gotten carnations from the grocery store. Um, that's sort of the, the group it's in. 
they they started watching this plant species in 1995 so i was eight at the time (laughs) Um, and one of the things that that we've learned that has just blown us away from that study is how long this species can live Um, so what they did when they first set up this project is they um, marked all these individual plants with numbered tags and they they went back every year to measure how much they grew, whether they survived or had died in the previous year. Um, and we have now, you know, done that continuously up until now we're in, you know, 2023. Um, and we've seen, you know, just really high survival rates and we know how fast they grow, which is not very fast at all. I mean, we're talking like millimeters. over the course of an entire year. And so we've been able to figure out actually that, that these, these plants can live for hundreds of years. Um, and, and that's just shocking to me. And when I, when I think about, you know, climate change, it seems like it is happening so fast from my perspective. And of course my perspective is very much based on kind of a human lifespan, Um, But for this species, it is literally all happening within a single generation. So, you know, there are there are plants in our study that were alive 200 years ago and they're experiencing such dramatically different climate conditions and such rapid change in their climate Um you know, that to, to us, that would just be like a blink of the eye. Dang. I I mean, I don't care how many times I hear that. It's still like, I have to pick my jaw up off the floor because I've met this species. It's tiny. It's a, it's, it it looks like moss unless it's blooming and then you, Oh, (laughs) look flowers. But you know, the thought that like a few centuries could be wiped out with an, a, a bad step from a hiker is sad enough, but then you, again, add that context of everything you just described of how much that single plant has experienced, let alone you have to think about this from a population sustainability perspective. And it's fascinating, too, that you're working in alpine areas because, you know, correct me if I'm wrong and assuming it's kind of like the poles, these high elevation areas are probably experiencing shifts at, at a more dramatic scale than areas a few thousand feet lower in elevation. Yes, that's that's an excellent point. Yeah, we know that... Um, you know, not only are the species in Arctic or Alpine systems highly vulnerable to this change, we also know that climate is changing just at a much faster pace in these environments. And so, um, you know, and you couple that with the fact that the species there really are uh, adapted to some of the coldest conditions on Earth, um, it's hard, you know, they don't have the option to move even if they could, you know, so if you're already growing at the top of a mountain or close to the poles and that becomes too warm for you, you know, where, where do you have to go at that point? And so, um, it is sobering, you know, we, we go back and we revisit this, these same study sites every single year, we're revisiting the same individual plants every year. And we are seeing um, increasing 
mortality of these individuals. And it's, it's sad. It's sad to realize that, you know, so I've, I only personally have been doing this um, for eight years, but even then, you know, you have your favorite plants. <laughs> you can't help it. <laughs> you go, you see them every year for eight years and then uh, you come back one year and, and it's died. And, um, you know, it, it, it is, it's very sobering. And I think about that a lot that these plants were here long before I was ever born. And many of them will be here long after I'm gone. And um, we're here to sort of just document and tell their story. Dang. Yeah. Uh, they talk about sort of the emotional toll of being an ecologist in this century. And, and it's stories like that that really kind of bring it to the forefront. And it's it's not easy being a scientist. It's not easy doing research, especially in extreme habitats. But to add the backdrop of like knowing why this is happening and like you said, being attached to an organism, it's it's good to have an attachment to other living things that are you know, kind of hard to empathize with. It's I, my, my heart goes out to you and your colleagues in a lot of ways. Thank you. Um, yeah, it, it, it is, it is difficult. Um, but I think also one of the value like of this really long-term study is that we are able to get sort of this baseline data of how these populations were doing, um, you know, even 20 years ago. And because of that, we're able to really clearly um, distinguish the change in performance and relate that to climate change. And um, yeah, I do, I do think it's important to document that and, um, and be able to just have a record of these organisms that that were there and, and, you know, how they used to function in the past and how much that has changed is changing now and will continue to change in the future of this work. Right, right. I mean, it's vital. And there's as many stories of how change is going to affect organisms as there is are organisms out there. But one thread that excites me about your research is this concept of intraspecific variation. And that's a, a loaded term, uh, especially if you're not familiar with the literature. But, you know, you think about something that can live that long or a population. Think of how the, the age distribution, all of them are going to experience change to one degree or another over such a long life cycle. And this idea that either a population difference is detectable that could benefit or not benefit or even within an individual, something that lives for 200 years, you know, maybe there's some phenotypic plasticity capabilities in there. So let's let's talk about that element a little bit. Like, why go that route with it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, so this idea of intraspecific variation is is that you know we we may think about what a species as a whole um, can do that its environmental requirements or its ecology but we also know that evolution acts within species so different populations of a given species may have adapted somewhat different traits or to different types of environments and then even within a local population, the individuals there can uh, differ quite a bit, um, both just through, you know, genetic variation between one individual or another, 
Um, but also for plants that, you know, spend the majority of their life in one spot, even sort of micro environmental effects can end up mattering a lot if a plant is growing in a slightly more protected site, then um, maybe it does a little bit better in that drought year than a plant that's in a, a very exposed, sunny um, site. And so um, we've become really interested in how that variation among populations and even within populations can really alter our predictions of how a species might be impacted by climate change. Um, and so, you know, some of the work that we've done in the Arctic, for example, we've, we've shown that uh, different populations of moss campion, although they're all cold adapted as a species, they actually do have different temperature tolerances and different temperature thresholds where um, they start to do really poorly. And so because of that, you know, if we look at sort of the temperature tolerance of the species as a whole, we kind of take that zoomed out average view, we may actually be underestimating just how challenging climate change is for any particular local population. Um, so for an example, our plants in really high north Arctic sites are more sensitive to warming than plants that are growing in alpine sites farther south, like in Colorado or New Mexico. Hmm. And so, you know, we may think like, well, the, the highest degree of warming is happening in the south, and that may be where plants are most at risk. But if these populations are locally adapted, then kind of any degree of change could be equally um, difficult for populations kind of across the range. Huh. And, and this is starting to make me think about this idea of like species distribution modeling and, and how difficult it can be to make predictions. But when you factor in what's happening within populations, then across populations and then across the entire range of a species, those just get magnified. And that's why I think in biology and ecology, especially making these sweeping generalizations is often met with resistance because there's always an example of, no, not over here. <laughs> yes. And it's always such a tension, right? Between, you know, we can really dig into the mechanisms for a few model species. Um, but, you know, if we want to inform conservation, we have to be able to provide recommendations for many, many species, many of which, you know, we don't have perhaps the time or the funding um, to to study really carefully. And so um, that's why, you know, we've gotten really interested in this question of, you know, to what extent can we generalize across species? How wrong might we get it if we're making predictions for species where we don't have, you know, experimental data or genetic data to look at intraspecific variation. Ooh. Lots of covariates in your models. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you go about trying to understand this in a species like the campion that grows a few millimeters per year and can live for centuries? How do you study that in, in, in 
your lifetime, let alone the time that you're allowed to do field work? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Because, right, if we if we wanted to track one plant over its entire life, we would need um, many, many generations of scientists to hand off the baton. Um, So instead, what we do is um, use kind of an approach called demographic modeling. Um, You know, we always joke we're like the U.S. Census Bureau, but for plants. (laughs) Good. but it's a similar idea. Uh, we can what we can do is we can uh, study um, individuals of the species Moscampion that are at different kind of stages of the life cycle. So we can study seedlings that have just germinated. We can study plants that are just a few years old um, to plants that you know are medium size, maybe have just reached the size where they're able to start flowering to some of the largest, oldest plants in the population. Um, and so what we do is we we measure what are called these vital rates, but they're essentially um, all the things that make up a life cycle, the rate at which you survive, the rate at which you grow, and the rate at which you reproduce. And if we, you know, by getting that information, for sort of all these different types of individuals that represent different stages of the life cycle, we can put it together in a model that allows us to sort of infer what would happen to that one individual over its lifetime. Um, And one of the really neat things about this approach is it allows us to test, you know, what is this population doing over the long term? Um, Is it, would we predict it to grow or at least, you know, stay stable over long term, which requires that, you know, births are outweigh or or at least equal to deaths. So the number of individuals in the population will stay relatively constant. Or would we um, expect this population to shrink over time and eventually um, go locally extinct? And so... Um, we're able to make those predictions and we can take it kind of to the next step and relate all of those vital rates to climate conditions. So we can ask, you know, how does temperature or snowpack or snowmelt influence how big you grow or how well you survive or how much you reproduce? And that allows us to actually predict um, whether populations could be stable or would go locally extinct um, under forecasted climate conditions as well. Wow. Very powerful tool. And every time I dive into the literature on that, it's I'm amazed that the the inferences that allows you and how advanced it's gotten in, in recent decades. But, you know, the, this idea that you could even kind of tease out like, okay, well, is it adult survival that matters or is it seedling survival? Is there some intermediate life stage or, or moment in the life history of this plant that, that matters more? I mean, it's tough to communicate models to those that don't use them or read about them regularly, but the accuracy of these things is, is almost, it, it kind of gives you goosebumps when you get a good one, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and and it has been incredibly useful in conservation for for that precise reason you mentioned. Um, It's 
helped inform, you know, if if there's a, a rare species or a threatened species, we can identify, you know, what aspect of the life cycle is most important for stabilizing that population over time. And how can we sort of focus management or conservation efforts on that? And the flip side of that, of course, is for, say, invasive species, species that their populations are just growing exponentially and we don't want it. Um, you know, what what aspects of the life cycle are contributing to that really rapid population growth and how might we be able to manage for that? So very useful tool if applied in different ways. And that's also very exciting to have a tool that's so multifaceted. But you know, again, with this idea that you are working in wild populations, it's never just the species in isolation. It'd be convenient, uh, but that's where greenhouse and lab studies come into play. In the wild, you've got neighboring plants. You've got neighboring species that aren't plants. You've got microbes in the soil. You've got soil conditions. How do you start to tease apart, like, which ones you're going to focus on? Because, like, yeah, you could try to model everything, but then you're just creating literally a simulation of our Earth. How do you start to tease apart the ones that you think might be important and start to pull out the ones that truly are in the grand scheme of everything that can affect a plant and the plant population you're studying? Yeah, that that's an excellent question. Um, I don't know if I have a good answer for <laughs> that's it. That's okay. <laughs> Quite all right. I mean, that's real, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um, you know, the truth maybe is that as scientists, we all sort of have our biases of what we personally find most interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think, you know, folks are sort of drawn to certain types of interactions that they tend to focus on. But, um, you know, also, I, I do think, you know, for when some of the value of a long-term study is that you get to kind of know that natural history of your organism and you can see what seems to really be important. So as an example, um, the, I mentioned that this study involves two Arctic and Alpine species so far. I've exclusively talked about, um, Moss Campion, but our other species is um, a little bistor. It's um, a bistorta vivipara. And um, it, it has this little like below ground tuber that it, it grows from. And um, it's actually a, a food source for a lot of small mammals. Um, and, you know, I personally have eaten it. It tastes a little bit like a raw potato. <laughs> Okay. Um, and we, we've sort of didn't set out to study that interaction at all, but over the course of the study, we realized that our plants started disappearing mm. and we would see this characteristic little hole and we would see our nice little numbered tag and right where it had used to be. And we realized that what was happening is over the winter voles were burrowing through and eating those tubers um, as a food source. And so now we've had to really take that into account. And so we make sure to record if a plant has died, whether it's due to a vole or not, because it's ended up being really important. Um, you know, I, I said, you know, one of our goals is to ask how climate 
might affect something like survival, but we also have, you know, occasional just sort of boom years where the vole population is doing really well for whatever reason and sort of hammers our plants. And so we now have to distinguish, you know, mortality that may be attributed to the climate conditions in that year from mortality that's really due to that um, interaction with voles. And so I think that's a good example of you sort of just watch a species for a couple of years and you sometimes get surprised and realize, you know, something else seems to matter a lot for that species. Your career has had a few of those moments. So, oh, okay. Nature's thrown us curveballs. Let's work with it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's unlucky or, or just uh, rolling with the punches a there little bit, but yeah, it's you, honestly you, one of my you're, favorite parts of this job. <laughs> you yourself are adaptable as a scientist, whether the plants you study are or are not. But yeah, I've, I've been on both sides of sort of the continuum of this idea of I've had advisors and scientists that are like, nah, just pick a few variables that either are or aren't important. Let the, let the stats tell you. And then the re the other side of that is let's measure as many as we possibly can, throw them all at the wall and see whatever the model picks out as being important. And there's trade-offs, right? But the key to what you just outlined there, and it's something I parrot time and time again, every time I get the chance, is just take the time to learn the organism you're studying. I can't tell you how frustrating it is to meet those scientists and I get the motivation as to why they have to do it this way, but they're just picking things to work with them and they're not thinking about them. They're never out in nature. It's, it's go outside, observe these plants, spend the time doing natural history observations because it can make the difference in, in what kind of conclusions you're making, how you're setting up your questions and, and really how to interpret the data that, you know, the data are what they are. It's, it's how we analyze them and, and interpret them. So to me, that is such an important point to drive home. And, and you are living proof that being adaptable and, and paying attention to that sort of stuff can make a finer model at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I am a really firm believer that if you go out into nature or, I, you know, I should say nature because I think this is true for urban system, urban ecology as well. If you, if you go outside your door <laughs> and you really pay attention to what's happening sort of in one spot or one set of, or, set of organisms, um, you're guaranteed to learn something interesting. Uh, <laughs> but there, there is a tension there because of course we, we do, you know, have to pitch our work and apply for grant proposals in the, the context of a particular question that we're going to answer. You know, you can't ask for money to just go um, sit and watch oh, shucks. <laughs> an Alpine Meadow for a couple of years. That's why I never get grants. <laughs> um, but I, I do, I, I, you know, that is a piece of advice that I give to my grad students a lot is that, you know, you come up with questions you find interesting, you do your best to find the right study system to answer them and to design an experimental approach that's going to answer that question. But at the same time, pay attention. And if something else seems to be important, make sure you're recording that as well, because um, we don't want to be sort of shoehorning systems into particular questions, we want to pay attention to what the right questions are for any given system. 
Totally, totally, totally. And uh, it, to have an advisor that says that to students, I think really sets a good foundation early on because you get the wrong person and then suddenly it's just you're, you're a bean counter for the rest of your life. <laughs> and that's that's a shame. Well, I, the, it's, this isn't a plant example. Well, it sort of is. Um, to me, one of the best examples of that are the Galapagos finches um, where, you know, we just had this great natural history observation. And then we see this drought event and all of a sudden finch beaks start evolving and because the seed availability has changed and you couldn't have predicted that that would happen or set out to study it. it you just had to be there and pay attention. And it has ended up being one of the greatest examples of contemporary evolution we have. Um, and so I think, you know, we have to just sort of keep our eyes open and, and pay attention to those opportunities. Yeah. And, and we all need more excuses to be outside, period. So <laughs> bingo. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so again, thinking from the population perspective, long lived sessile organisms, they can persist if they are adaptable or have some sort of variability or the genetic diversity to to handle what nature throws at them. But it's one thing to find the adults. It's another thing to find evidence of reproduction. And, and organisms need to reproduce to keep those populations functioning, healthy populations. And so the other part of this comes into this play of with environmental change comes changes in, in cues of life history events like flowering. And if your flowers are coming earlier or later than the pollinators, well, that could be a recipe for problems. So you've dabbled in that world a bit too. Um, let's let's unpack that a little bit because we've talked about phenology in the past, but here's someone that's really stuck into it in a in a very specific sort of way. Yeah. Um, so this is maybe a, an example of of just sort of watching what's happening and getting really interested and just continuing to do it yes. year after year after <laughs> <Yes>. year. Um, <laughs> so when I, I first started working with these alpine plants as a postdoc, um, you know, I, I was thinking, well, we have just an incredible data set on the performance of these plants. As I mentioned, their survival growth and reproduction rates and how that's related to climate but we haven't collected much data on, you know, their traits or what might be the link between performance and climate. And so I became really interested in when these plants flower. Um, and that's because we've seen globally that one of the main responses or impacts of climate change so far on plants is causing them to change the timing of these different life history events. So whether that's, you know, when deciduous trees like leaf out in the spring, whether plants initiate flowering or uh, whether, you know, leaves senesce and drop in the fall, we're seeing huge shifts in when this happens and by and large shifts to earlier in the year, which is consistent with, you know, temperatures warming, snow melting out earlier and, and conditions being drier. Um, and so so to me, that was sort of an obvious potential link uh, for this species. We'd seen that with climate change, reproductive rates were going down. And so I wondered, you know, could that be because of when these plants are flowering? And so, you know, through the help of just a 
huge number of really amazing undergraduate students that that worked in this system and helped collect these data. We started keeping track of when these individuals in this long-term study were flowering each year. Um, and not just when they would start flowering, but we would literally count how many flowers they had open every couple days over the entire summer. So we have, you know, when they start flowering, their peak flowering, how long they're flowering, all of that. Um, and we've now been doing it for six years. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and one of the, the really clear patterns that, that we've gotten from that is that this species is shifting its timing of flowering really dramatically uh, in response to climate change. So, um, you know, in years where the snow melts out earlier and temperatures are warmer in the spring, plants can flower up to three weeks earlier than years with late snow melt, cooler conditions. Um, and so, you know, that was really exciting for us at first because we thought, well, maybe being able to flower earlier in the spring is, um, you know, one way that this species can really cope with these changing climate conditions. And we've been able to show that flowering earlier in the spring is, in fact, the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, the plants that flower earlier um, are able to make more seeds than plants that don't shift their flowering time in those those warm years but um the downside <laughs> is that it's not quite enough um so even though flowering earlier in the spring is better than not shifting your flowering at all it's they're still not producing as many seeds in those early snowmelt years as they would have in sort of more historical climate conditions. Dang. Uh, that's tough. And, you know, it's plants need as many seeds as they can produce. The The likelihood of one making it is so small. <laughs> so that's, that's tough to hear. But, you know, I think whether you've intended it to or not, your work and the work of your colleagues is a big, big, PSA for genetic diversity being a very important thing to factor in when we're thinking of conservation and, and really preserving wild spaces. It's not about, okay, well, we got one population left. That's fine. Let's destroy everything else and put a strip mall there. It's no, some of those populations and even some of those individuals within various populations might have what it takes to survive if we just give them the chance. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's such an important point. Um, you know, just understanding that we really have to think carefully about the genetic variation within a species and how can we conserve and protect that variation into the future. Um, and so one example with the flowering phenology that we found is that um, because we're collecting this data on for this really long lived species where we have known plant individuals that we revisit every year, we're able to see how a given individual plant is shifting its flowering in response to climate, not just the population as a whole. And what we found is a lot of variation among individual plants in how responsive they are. Um, so hmm. some plants 
may not shift their timing of flowering very much at all from year to year. And some plants are able to flower much earlier in warm years than they would in years with more historical climate conditions. Um, so we don't yet know that it's due to genetic variation. It could, as I mentioned, be because of some micro environmental differences that maybe one plants in a slightly more protected area and one plants in a more exposed area. Um, but that's something we're, we're interested in figuring out in the future and, um, really kind of weed getting into, you know, what are the consequences of those individual differences? So just as one example, because these individual plants vary in their responsiveness, one of the things that we see is that as the climate gets warmer, there's more sort of spread in when individual plants are flowering. So there's actually sort of a larger um, range of flowering and less overlap between individuals. And um, we, ha we don't have the data on this yet, but you could imagine that maybe not flowering at the same time as your neighbor could have also real consequences for reproduction. Dang. Yeah. So much to tease apart. And, you know, just like humans, we're all individuals. So are plants. So are every organism on this planet, even the clonal ones, right? Because again, you have to factor in the background conditions and no two things can occupy the same space at the same time. So that's going to have even micro differences. And, and plants are really great examples of how even seemingly inconsequential minute differences can make changes on some level. I know it's lucky. It's lucky we have in our entire careers to keep asking questions <laughs> because we're never going to run out. Right. Right. And, and normally at this point I would say like, what's on the horizon, but I think you've said it <laughs> like you've got a lot of long-term work going on, which is also really cool. Like the, the idea of like the, the grant cycle of three, four years, you wrap it up, publish, yay, go to the conference and then go home, start the next one. Uh, this is why these long-term ecological studies are so vital because we, we've got nothing when it comes to organisms that can vastly outlast our careers, let alone our single lifetime. Yeah, I... I really agree. We've been, you know, lucky to get long-term funding for this work and, you know, just touching back on some things we were talking about earlier about paying attention to the natural history, really getting to know a system and that opportunity to be surprised by something that you may not see coming, I think is really unique to long-term studies. And so, um, yeah, I see that as one of the sort of most valuable areas for research in the future. Totally. Yeah. That long-term guarantee of like the security blanket, uh, gives you a little bit more creative freedom to explore those questions that in a very crunch period maybe aren't worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is tough, as you mentioned, because of that three to four year grant cycle that also tends to be kind of the timeline for PhD projects. Like we really do have a lot of studies that are about two to four years yeah. <laughs> go into it. Um, but, you know, for example, one of the really understudied aspects of climate change is 
is the effect of climate variability. Um, and it's very difficult to get at that in a short time span. So I think, you know, that's one of the really exciting edges of, of climate change research. Nice. So with that in mind, uh, if people want to keep a finger on the pulse of your work, the work of your colleagues, where do you recommend they go to learn more about the, the, the research you're doing? Um, yeah, so I, as I mentioned, I'm at UGA, and I, our lab does have a website, although it is sadly outdated. Oh. <laughs> it's one of those things that um, keeps ending up on the bottom of my to-do list to update our lab website. Um, but also, you know, we have I have a Google Scholar profile, um, but also just shoot me an email. You know, you can you can find my email. I'm at the plant biology department at the University of Georgia. I'm on my emails on the faculty page there. And if anyone has any questions, I would be happy to uh, chat with anyone. Fantastic. And I'll, of course, save everyone the trouble of having to remember that or write it down by putting all the links in the show notes. But Dr. DeMarsh, this has been really enlightening. I, I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing, but also for the time uh, you, you, you gave us today to talk about it. It is fascinating. And I think I speak for everyone listening when I say, keep it up, please. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. This has been a really fun conversation getting to touch on all these different ideas. Good. I'm glad. Well, you're welcome back on at any time. So just keep us uh, in the loop. Great. All right. Well, in the meantime, uh, hang in there and keep it up. Thanks. All right. Incredible and very important work. I thank Dr. DeMarsh for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. And boy, long-term ecological studies on individual plants are so important. And as we said time and time again throughout that discussion, get out there, observe, ask questions. You never know what a chance observation can reveal about the natural world and how it's changing. But that is it for me this week. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it. There is a lot of different ways you can do that. You can become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants, or you can buy a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch or stickers. All of those links can be found in the show notes at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. So save yourself the trouble of writing it down. Just go check the show notes. Once again, that's indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.